The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This week, we're in Paris, France for croissants, baguettes, cheese, and learning about natural wine in the City of Lights. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California. Welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Nice one, Bart. Hey, welcome to the Winemakers. This is Brian Casey with Bart Hansen and Sam Katuri. We're over in Napa today, and we are visiting with Paul Maybray. And uh, we just wanted to find out exactly what it if is. If they would let us into Napa. Number one. We made it um, through the checkpoint. Yeah, we made it to Naked Wines papers. one day. Right. I think. Well, but it was the fog-covered roads that allowed yeah. us to get through. And you, you dropped my name at the gates, right? Right. 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 Well, I mispronounced it, but then Bart corrected the pronunciation. <laughs> Paul Mabry, nobody knows. Oh, Paul Mabry. Oh, there we go. All right. That, the table's going to be a problem. So it is, it is, Brian's, uh, Brian's not going to be happy with us on that. Oh yeah. Well, Brian's not gonna. Care. It's Ed that's gonna be mad about it. I know. Trim, <laughs> trim your nails. No, uh, no scratching the table, please tonight. All right. Well, Bart, you know, you were interested in having Paul on. You want to tell a little brief history of yeah. your your personal history with Paul. So, um, I, I would say when I started on social media, uh, call it. Oh, I, I don't even know. But it was Twitter was my first introduction. Is this on a rotary phone? Morse <laughs> <laughs> code. Yeah. Walk uphill both right. in the snow right. to get to your Twitter account. But yeah. so, you know, it was sometime after 2008, 2009, probably after that. At any rate, um, uh, Jeff Bunchu is a very good friend of me, mine. He got me into it. He was someone that followed you. Of course, I started following you. Um, interesting perspective on things. Kind of learned a lot about it. And at that point, um, there was a tasting that the organization you were involved with at the time, and I don't recall, you did a tasting down at Google. Mm-hmm. And um, I got to be part of one of those. I, I signed up for that. And I was telling the story the other day. Had I known now what I didn't know then... I could have probably really done some business out of the people that I met at Google, you know, because even just going down unprepared, not knowing what I was doing, I sold a couple hundred dollars worth of wine. And then I never followed up with any of those people, you know. Ah, you're hurting my heart. I, I know, I know. But I was I was very I was a winemaker. I knew nothing about running a business. And so I've learned a lot since that time. It's an important admission for a winemaker. <laughs> All you winemakers out there, remember that. <laughs> at any rate, um, and it was a good learning experience. So I appreciate that and thank you. And and that's kind of what started down the road. I think your perspective on um, uh, direct to consumer um, and engagement with people is fascinating. And I, I can tell you, we feel that it's um, very valid. You know, we see it in our podcast success. Can we say we have podcast success? I think we can. Self-defined, right? <laughs> Isn't that success in 2019? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Huge. <laughs> smashing. <laughs> bigly. It's bigly. We've, we've bigly. It's a, it's a bigly deal. Yeah. We, 
So I'm going to leave it at that comment and and um, let you say it. Well, maybe Paul can just tell us exactly what it is you do. Because yeah. if, in doing research um, and seeing what it is you do, it seems you do a lot of stuff. Yeah, no, no. I don't know that I do a lot of stuff. I just do one thing, uh, an iteration after iteration. So I'm kind of the bridge between a wine and tech, and I've been my whole career. That's, you know, starting with uh, working with Wine.com, Wine Shopper. And even before then, uh, when I worked for wineries, uh, you know, um, helping develop software solutions so that they would internally, so they could do a better job by the direct consumer. In fact, my first job, I was a sales rep, and I am the worst sales guy you've ever met. And so I wrote my own CRM. Now, program. why is that? I'm just a terrible sales guy. I just it's not my it's not my forte. I'm just too nice, right? I'm not like trying to put notches on the the, the bed. I'm you know trying to give a value exchange, be friendly. But um, I wrote my own CRM program. Would say, hey, call this day, come see this person, and here's the name of their kids. They like cigars. And my sales, you know, obviously hockey stick. Then it wasn't because I was a good sales guy. I just paid attention. Yeah. Had a way of tracking that stuff. I mean, that's you know. Uh, Bart, I'm sure Bart's gone through this, and you know every uh, w anybody who owns a tasting room or runs a tasting room has a winery. Um, every single there's a ton of these different CRMs out there now. You know, customer research. How do you what is it, management? Customer relationship management. Relationship. Uh, they all seem like there's good. There's pros and cons, right? I mean, that was yeah. it. Took me like a year to pick one because every time I would. Pick one. I'd talk to somebody else. Be like, "Oh, that one sucks because it doesn't do this." Well, can I tell right. you that like CRM is a is a misused word a lot of times, and and it's 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 less about a tool, more about a philosophy, and that's where we mistake it in the wine industry. It's I could do a great CRM with a spreadsheet, right? But as long as I have a philosophy of how I'm going to take care of those customers, I'm going to win. It, the tools don't make you better; it's the philosophy, and then the tools help you scale. Okay. You know, Mike, Mike Benziger, um, we would go out as the winemaking team on sales trips a couple times a year, and he made us essentially write thank you notes to everybody, and, and he wanted you to do it on the plane ride home because it was lost by the time he got home if he didn't do it then. And he did it by example, and it worked, you know, it really did. And so um, that was his way of running, you know, his CRM. No, it, it's all about a personal connection and, yeah. and respecting that the yeah. human exchange and adding a service level to it. It's Danny Danny Myers, right? You know, setting right. the table is what we're doing and, and doing it. And in a world of infinite choices, service is the only differentiator, really. I mean, people care about how you make them feel more than they care about what you sell them. Right. And that's something, this is something that we've always dealt with in the hotels, I me mean, working for the Four Seasons in the Fairmont, um, that, you know, if anyone comes in for dinner, we get a little chit printed out that before we approach the table, we know their last name, we know their likes and dislikes, we know their allergies, and sometimes, like you said, would know the children's mm -hmm. names. Um, I remember at the Four Seasons on Maui, we would always get the kids. You know, it was it was really taking care of the kids was a was a big focus because they're on vacation, and then. And this has happened to me. We we stay at the Grand Wailea every year, not because that's where my wife and I choose to stay, but because my daughter feels well taken care of there, and so that's where she wants to go. But it's 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 one thing having those tools and then using those tools, um, and and that's what we tend to do at the at the restaurant. Is the more information you can put into that database, the better off you are. So it's it's simple things with engaging the people. Um, um, and the, the hotels have caught on, but that's, um, you know, it's interesting to, to sort of 
put that on the winery perspective. I mean, it's a little bit looser. I've worked at wineries as well, and it doesn't seem like the engagement, the the it's not the need for engagement. It's it's not like that's a focus a lot of times um, for wineries, and and maybe it's because I work for uh, primarily smaller wineries. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- but that's not an excuse. I'm saying it's uh, sometimes I don't think that's a focus for people. So a couple things. Uh, let me uh, unravel. You got a lot in there, but. To your point, wineries, um, because of our own success, have a sense of apathy towards that engagement, right? Yeah. We have so much enotourism in Napa, Sonoma, Paso Roble, Santa Barbara. I mean, almost everywhere you go, with the exception of maybe the poor Sierra foothills and you know Mendocino way up there, we're getting a lot of people coming yeah. here. Yeah. So we don't have to do a really great job. But what's really interesting, what you said is, you know hospitality companies are really good about that understanding the customer, but really caring about the customer when they're at the location or on their way to the location. So a restaurant only cares and wants to know as much about you before you get there, but when you go home, it's not that important, right? Whereas wineries, we have to bridge the gap of both those things. You know, we have a consumer packaged good and we're a hospitality business, so we have to know about the customer and when they get there, treat them well when they're at the winery, but especially treat them well when they go home so we can sell them more bottles of wine over and over again. It's a really fascinating bridge that no other industry has to that degree. Well, I would say that about the girl in the fig. I remember Sandra, you know, with her retail She's products. Awesome. <clears throat> One thing I would always say is that we were expanding the experience beyond the restaurant, that people would have something in the restaurant and then they would either take a bottle of wine and some fig jam or something, some cheese home, and they would sort of create an experience outside of the restaurant, but that was based on their experience inside the restaurant. So it's almost like they're still there. Yeah, she was imprinting them and then having a you know a way to reach back to them into their households, which is yeah. the ultimate goal that wineries have not solved yet. You know, how do we reach back to a consumer when they go back home to Boston or to Austin, when they're going back to to Florida or Illinois? How do we touch them on a high frequency or engage with them, to your point? Right. Well, and I think, you know, when we have people post, it's that thing when you send a shipment and they take a picture of opening the box, you know, the the, the unveiling. Unboxing. You know, unboxing is awesome. But what's even better is seeing the open bottle of wine. Oh, yeah. And then, Except and, wait. When the wine shows up, wait a week before you open it for the wine's sake. For, okay. for crying out loud. I mean, drink it all the night you get it and then order more and then wait a right. week. <laughs> That's amazing. But it's, um, I mean, that is the ultimate satisfaction. And then, you know, and then you, you do. You hope that they like it enough to order it again, you know. And you try to engage with them, but not too much. Um, and that's another, you know fine line well and then how do you determine what's too much well that's you know i have a problem right now with smith story we've had them on here but on my instagram account i swear they're posting 20 30 posts a day and so as i'm going through my feed i'm thinking okay enough already i like filtering through i love the once or twice a day where i get a little update but then when it becomes a little bit like like someone's just taking pictures and shooting out Instagram feed. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of content. And, and you know, that's really interesting because I was just sitting here thinking about what Allison does. Remember when we had her on the show, she talked about, it was talk of wine club and, you know, what do you do for your wine club? And she says, we don't really do anything for the wine club other than offer them the wines. And, and she goes, but I always think of something later on in the year and just like a for nothing gift, you know, and it's just something small. It goes with a handwritten note and stuff. Um, and she does it herself. And that is another way to touch, you know, your customers 
Um, and it's away from just sending something in a box of wine. Absolutely, um, but it's, but you're right, Brian. They do post a lot of pictures on Instagram. <laughs> well, for me, I think I'm a little bit different. And even when I was a or as a wine buyer, a lot of times I didn't like stuff getting shoved in my face. I liked getting nobody does. By the way, just so you know, I yeah. love getting someone throwing me a crumb, and I'm sort of then following the crumbs along the trail to find that wine. I liked if you planted a seed. And then I was able to sort of go through the journey at my own pace Play and go in my own direction. It's kind of like that. Um, so, I mean, and maybe this is a question for Paul. As you've gone through this and you're, what is, you know, how do you focus on quality touches and not quantity of touches? Because a thousand emails from your winery or, you know, the wine shop um, can are way easier to ignore than like two good ones, right? How does that, I mean... So I think that the, one of our first problems is that we're treating everyone as a universal whole. So every customer is important, but not every customer has the same importance. So you touch different customers differently. So for example, maybe you're a big buyer. You know, I'd want to pick up the phone and call you once, a, you know, every three months and say, hello, how are you doing? What's going on? How's your birthday? And maybe you're someone who barely buys at all and you get hit with all those messages over and over again. Um, you know, uh, the wine industry really needs to think how we treat our own customers into different groupings and treat them well, but better customers and create a ladder for people to get higher up and slow down when they're going down the ladder as well um, to the bottom. Um, but if you're talking about quality engagements, engagements are really about talking to people, right? And social media is the thin lines between the thick lines. And the thick lines are um, when you go visit someone at the tasting room, when you're tasting the wine with the winemaker in markets, when you're talking on the phone with a telemarketer and the thin lines are all the digital ones and email communication, visiting the website, all the social media. And you can take a lot of thin ones and turn them into a thick one. That's how come social media becomes a relationship builder. You know, you talk to someone over and over again, you create a relationship and right. you feel like you know them, you see their pictures, you know their psychology. Um, one of the problems we have though with wineries is that our focus is on content creation and pollution. We're just dumping content into the ecosphere and every brand is doing that. I, I used to do this. I don't do this anymore. I used to drive up and down Highway 29 and 101 past wineries. I knew where I was going past, and I'd tweet at them, and I'd say, if you answer this tweet in the next hour, I'll spend $200 worth of wine. <laughs> and I can't tell you how few answers right? I got. And so that's a, But I could see them still pushing out content in between my right. tweets. So that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting phenomenon, right? right. Well, and, and it's also – so that sometimes is what was programmed – content right and 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 someone's and not even really somebody else engaging. was driving right while you were tweeting at i'm the, not gonna answer okay. that question <laughs> if the law enforcement <laughs> individuals are listening but part i think you're right about some um marketing departments where it's one person that's responsible for just pushing content and maybe they're not the person that's responding yeah i mean to... there there was a winery that i worked at in the past and at the time um they hired a you know someone to do their social media and the majority of the stuff that they posted were other people's pictures mm -hmm. and try to tie it into theirs, you know, and there was no original content as to what was actually going on at the winery at the time. And to me, that was always a lost opportunity for them. But maybe that was what their marketing plan was, you know. Yeah, it's, it's like it's fingerprints. Hard to say. There's like fingerprints. I mean, one of my favorite marketing stories used to be with Craig Camp when he was running Cornerstone. He would compete toe-to-toe -to -toe with Kendall Jackson and their agencies, Constellation and their agencies, and it's because he split up the social media responsibilities. 
you know, one person answered all the wine club and members. Another one created the content in the tasting room. The sales rep was taking pictures of all the restaurants he was eating at in market and all the big wine events he was going to where the celebrity chefs were, you know, between all of them. And then Craig's job was to tell the soul of the winery and the story of why. And between five of them, you know, doing them 15, 10, 15 minutes a day, which was not a lot of time when you divide it up. They were like, like I said, they were out indexing the big guys on organic search, on customer collection, on, on customer loyalty. It was pretty amazing. Now, what what was total production for a winery like that? They were around ten thousand cases. Okay, so, so not five, not very f- big. Five FTEs, five full time employees. Right. So a small team, you know, and then they had a couple, obviously some, um, you know, p- fractional help that was coming in the taste room occasionally. You know, maybe four or five people that were not full time right. employees. Right. So for someone like Sam or Bart that's doing anywhere from five to fifteen hundred, I mean maxing out at two thousand cases a day, you don't have that team. What do you recommend for someone that's got you know two people that work or even one person? Yeah, look, this is a cultural thing more than it is anything else, and it's not hard to answer when people talk to you and choose how to stop a conversation. Say you know, but. Being responsive is not a difficult task. I mean, when I was running Vintank, you know, we were getting thousands of conversations a month. And, you know, I'd be in the supermarket and I'd get a push notification. I'd make a determination if I should answer or not. And I've been very vocal. I run social pretty well now. Um, I think it's important that we talk to our customers. There's there's always ROI in talking with your customers. And Sam's good at that. You're good with Twitter. Um, I, I mean, I do okay. You know, I, I'm sure that everybody who I haven't responded to over, you know, is listening to this going, well, Sam's not that good at that. Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, and this is, I think, what Vin Tank did. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit is, you know, how you bring that, you know, as all of those sources are coming in and you're getting all these different channels, uh, email and text and phone calls and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, you know, whatever else is out there. Um to just, I mean, I guess that's what customer relations management is all about, right? How do you get bring that information in and then, uh, you know, respond in a timely and appropriate way? Yeah, message consolidation is a huge problem, or communication right. consolidation. And that's what Vintank did. We right. would collect all the messages from all the different social media channels, all the different bulletin boards, and put into a stream that would, if it was to you, about you, or with you, right. Right. it was coming in. And, and we did great. I mean, we had 1,400 paying customers. We were very low priced. There's we, we actually led innovation in social media from the wine industry, which was really unusual. Um, any digital innovation coming from wine is very unusual. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, And what year what, what years was that? So 2009 to 2014, I think we sold right. it to okay. uh, WTO, and then they ran it for another two years, then resold it uh, nice. to a company called Avero. And okay. we followed it both times around there. And that was one of those things. Um, you talked to almost every winery that missed the old Vintank because it was actually a really good platform for doing exactly that, saving you time. You log in. Yeah. If it was in that stream, you know it was at least something you should look at. Right. Huh. At a minimum, at best, it's something you should answer, right? Yeah. Um, and that's that's a place where the wine stream never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, it's truly, it was, you know. Such a uh, you, victory you, from the defeat from the jaws of victory oh man you would think i i remember going to wine i won't name their names and i you know i had to go to the winery three times to do a sales pitch right met with their executives one day my son was sick i had to hire a babysitter you know for the day and between gas the babysitter 
they said, no, we're not going to do this. They just put a $2 million tasting room in it. The price was $45 a month. <laughs> They're like, it's out of budget. And I'm just thinking, I've spent more in gas and babysitting fees to try to sell you this platform right. for 45 bucks. $500 it, they, a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was that was one of those dark days where I went home. I said, "Honey, I, I don't know that I want to be in this industry anymore. You know, this is just too much. You'd think I'm Rumpel Steelskin trying to steal their baby, right. and all I'm trying to do is help them solve this problem. And and the solution I provided was a good solution. It just you know, the wine industry has definitely been slow to get on board with this. Um, and maybe now it's and I'd be curious of your perspective, but maybe now it's a little bit better just because there's so many more young people that are now have wine labels and are in the wine business. Um, it's, it's not youth. It, it's, it's necessity. Right. So, I mean, if you look at our evolutions, we really react to um, challenges pretty well. And to be fair, look, we've had double digit growth for two decades plus. Right. Right. So why fix it if it's not broken? Right. And so we don't really invest in R and D or in the future. We're an annual industry. We harvest and when we hit hard times, so let's use our first example of hard times in a long time, 2009, right? So 2009 comes along, many winers are being delisted, you know, en masse, right? From the wholesalers, because there's less wholesalers. Right. And the first thing winers do is finally take up direct to consumer, which has been available to us for a very long time, by the way. Right. Um, you know, but, and we're like, we should do this DTC thing, you know? And instead of actually looking at direct to consumer in its totality, DTC became tasting rooms. And if you see, the DTC growth has grown exponentially in taste rooms and as a result, wine clubs too. Right. 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 But we haven't touched real DTC, you know, digital at all. We haven't touched telemarketing a little bit even, right. you know, or even we're barely scratching the surface still of what we could do. And we have a limited time to actually, you know, get better at it. And why do you say we have a limited time? Well, look, in 2005, when we ran out with Granholm, which was great for the wine industry and started to open up states. The one thing we so, did... And just real quick, for yeah. that's a, a Supreme Court decision that basically allowed for wineries to ship directly to customers in other states. Yeah. So and, that was any of this... Oh, you know, that's 90% of our listener base probably right. is people who are wine club members or people who come and visit places and buy wine and ship it home to themselves. Yeah, no, that's a great uh, addition. I a little insider baseball, I'm sorry. But um, prior to that, which we forget about, is that the wine industry had uh, the ability to ship to 60% of the market. So we inched after Granholm, we started chipping away, and I think we're at like 90% or something now in the market with some right. strange states still. Outliers are strange. Right, right. Um, but what we did purposely is we excluded retailers in that fight for interstate shipping. Right. Right. And so as a result, we've had a, a competitive advantage against retailers. We have a larger footprint of places we can ship wine than they can. But one for us that have been in the wine industry a long time, uh, uh, what was being claimed as the reason that you couldn't ship wine interstate is because underage drinkers would drink the wine. Right. You couldn't collect taxes. And creating a system to help collect those taxes would be impossible. So now we get Grant home. Wineries successfully put up a permitting system all across the country. Taxes are successfully being collected. Successfuls with air quotes on both of those. No, I agree. I agree with we've we've done a we've done an, a mediocre job, and you know we put all these crazy constraints, but it's it's better. It exists. Right. It exists. Right. And underage drinking at wine is not happening in mass by any means. No, maybe White Claw. Yeah, I mean underage drinking is not happening. Because UPS is showing up at your door with a case of wine from your favorite winery in Sonoma or 
Nah, but no, that's no. not that's not what how kids are getting a hold of booze. Yeah, yeah, no, no question. Yeah. But what is it that took so long? That's what I didn't understand. Is you know working at working in a tasting room. I remember it was you know oh you live in New Jersey. Okay, well I can send you five bottles per person per visit. So if they wanted a case, it That's would be the, the husband problem. and the wife, and then it would be, okay, what's your the dog's dog. name? Spot. Okay, so we're going to send Spot two bottles. But it seemed like um, that it was online shopping that sort of, you know, when people can go online, look at something, they have the money, they connect the dots of, I want that, I have the money, why can't you send it to my house? It seemed like it just got to the point where people didn't understand why wine wasn't available in all of the different states. Yeah, I think they did and they didn't at the same time. I mean, they knew it was an adult beverage. It was just a pita, a pain in the ass, to be honest with you. I think there was just, uh, and it's still unnecessary. We're still trying to chip those down one by one. There's still restrictions per state, per person, per but, household. But why, though? Is it that they're not getting their cut from it, that they want to be selling the wine that's that's made in that state? I mean, what? It's a, re- a residual from the temperance movement. You know, we don't want to ship too much wine to people to make them boozers, essentially. So they're 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 putting limitations on it. It's really a temperance problem. Isn't that amazing? And, and I mean, that's part of it. The other thing that the reason that those laws have stuck around, though, is the wholesalers are, you know, in state legislatures, your state, wherever you're listening to this, there is somebody who works for, you know, the, the big distributors who has an ear, the ears of the, of, you know, the state legislatures and the governor in your state and are keeping those laws in a way that make it so that the easiest way for you to buy wine where you are is to go to a store and buy wine that they sold to that store. And, and that's, you know, the, the wineries as big a power you know as they seem here uh, you know they don't they don't carry the same sort of legislative lobbying weight in these states that are still super restrictive and that's you know that's where it, it all comes from it, it is true there are restrictive co- capacities coming from the wholesalers but what's happening now is the retailers are like hey you know what what was goose good for the goose is good for the gander right if it if the interstate commerce clause allows wineries to ship we should be able to do it and by the way all those things that you said were going to happen that were about, the wineries already proved that they can do it. And that's on its way to the Supreme Court case right now. And when it hits there, it's already a proven model. So we haven't fought against retailers toe to toe, you right. know? Right. Yeah, I would like a list of those people's names in every state <laughs> that make those decisions. We'll go but there together as a band of four. And, I, yeah. What was it? Storm the gates of Area 51. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, let's, let's start it now. We're going to get, with, your, get with your torches and magnums. And magnums. And magnums. <laughs> so then, Paul, tell us what it is exactly that you do currently. Yeah, I'm currently the CEO of Emetry, which is a customer insights company. So we take data from three sources and we help wineries understand who their customer is. Because candidly, most wineries don't know who's picking up their wine on the shelf in different states. And even the people that buy from them, they kind of only somewhat know about. Right. Whether that's a retailer or restaurateur, whether that's a consumer, direct consumer. So our job is to flesh that out to help them understand those buying behaviors and who means more to them than not. And then hand them answers to say, look, if you call this person today, they're ready to buy some more wine from you. Or a retailer, if you're looking to put some cases somewhere, this retailer is about to buy more, go do that. And by the way, you think your consumers are men. They're actually women between the ages of 38 and 42, and they get their media here. I want them to know as much as they can about their consumers, like traditional industries. All the other industries know a lot. And the wine industry, we market very blindly. 
But how do you get that information? I mean, I'm sure it's a number of different ways, but but if someone buys a bottle of wine in a Safeway in, in Chicago or something and they're pulling off a bottle of, let's say, Stanland's Carnia, which they wouldn't be able to get they in Safeway. They wouldn't be on a Safeway in uh, Chicago. Uh, but but, uh, but, but how, would, how, in Chicago, how would you know, uh, you know t- to tell that person, okay, this is who's buying your wine? Yeah, that's my hardest job right now is finding data sources that show good answers. So I bought from third-party sources before from Avino and Delectable. And I'm like an oil miner continuing to look for where I can find signal and then hand it off to the winery. So for for an app like Vivino or something, you know, I I think I have it on my phone. I don't know that I've used it. And I can't remember if I set up a profile. So am I setting up a profile that has my gender, my age... Yeah, I mean, we're not taking you as a specific person and sharing that with the winery, but we're saying people that drink Sandlin's, you know, Carignone also drink this, and this is what they look like, and here's where they are, and here's how often they buy, you know, so you can cluster these things together to get some pretty good answers. The problem with all those data sources is we need some clear signal, and every data has bias. So as an example, those, some of those apps skew to wines that are $20 north, right? right? So I don't actually know what an average consumer looks like. And I don't even know how an average consumer moves from an average consumer to the person we want to buy these fine wines. Right. I mean, you know, that's if somebody's on Vivino or Delectable or Seller Tracker or whatever, they're already or social media or social media. Yeah. Right. If they're so, if they're putting their wine on social media, they're probably already somewhat pre-qualified. The, right. They're, they're or at least the abnormal you know your basic consumer they're an enophile for sure right they're definitely an enophile they're they're a wine lover in general that's why the signal for wines under ten dollars a bottle is really hard to find using all these tools like you know no one's really posting about uh you know dude i crushed this great bottle of yellowtail last night it's all over my social it's all over my instagram right now my boda box went hard with the (laughs) we smashed it you know (laughs) no but i mean and that's a good wine itself but it's uh, it's not something people are running up the flagpole right it's not well it's the market changes east of reno right yeah well and that and really though people are putting out social media of their their hard seltzer purchases and consumption, right? I mean, how many times has, have you seen somebody like posing with their can of White Claw or Truly Absolutely. or whatever? But, but that's, that phenomenon is unique to brands that have brand strength like that. You don't okay. see all the other hard seltzers are not right. running it out there. And, you know, my, my White Claw has its own kind of yeah. charisma, to say, to say the least. <laughs> Any insight on how long that's going to last? Please tell us the wine, the wine consuming and selling public demand answers. Yeah, you know these fads are all over the place. I think it's, um, you know, in kind of a post-truth world, and you know, White Claw's done some phenomenal stuff, um, and they've leveraged it and moved it up. But um, uh, you know, l- lower alcohol brands are not better for you when you drink a case of White Claw. It's not better. Than <laughs> right. You know, it's if it's lower alcohol and you drink a case of it, it doesn't make it any better. You know, and and. You know, I think there's there's just people are just exploring different pieces. Yeah. I mean, we saw this. Some of us are old enough to remember it was called Barles and James wine coolers. Right. I do. That's, I do remember just, that. That's white, or Zima. Now or, that or, was or something Zima. that led to underage right. drinking. No. Yeah. Or Zima. Or right. you know, all of these things. Yeah. 
I, I wish Bartles and James would come back. As a matter of fact, I, I used no, to drink a fair did. amount of them. I think it has I, once, I think yeah. it, there was like a little re, like revival of Bartles and James. I want to see Night Train come back. That's what I want to see. <laughs> wow. I don't know that one. Um, that's oh, a possibility. Okay, okay. I mean, I think it's there's in the Blues Brothers. I think there's already <laughs> Night Train being made. It's just under a different label. Yeah. But I'd love to come come back White as Claw. a brand, like a, brand. a premium brand, like a hundred dollar bottle of wine. Night Train just as a yeah. I wonder who owns that. So, so I'm thinking, okay, so I'm thinking that, you know, I recently heard a story about how, how all of our uh, appliances in our home are going to be connected to the cloud. The internet of things. And it's, and it's not because I want to be able to turn on my blender while I'm sitting at my couch. The people that are pushed. <laughs> By the way, that sounds kind of cool. Hey, Margarita now. Siri, Margarita now. Or Alexa. Um, and even I think it's Price Fister. It's one of the the faucet companies. I don't know if you guys have seen that commercial. You can see it on right now, where where a woman pushes a button on her phone and she's got a, like a carafe or a glass under her sink, under the faucet, and she says pour five ounces, and it measures out exactly. And I'm thinking, what in the world kind of practical use is this? But really, it's that Drug those dealing. companies want to get you connected to the cloud so that they know their demographic and their area. So if you're, let's say you're in San Francisco and you see that people south of market have a high, uh, there's a, a lot of people own blenders that are connected to the cloud, but then you look over in the mission district and you're like, oh, they're not connected over there. So then you can tell the retailers, you guys have to move somehow over into the mission district to be able to sell your product. So it's actually has nothing to do with the consumer wanting to have access or ease. It's, it's that the, the, it's both. It's, it's it's both. Well, I mean, I think for some things you could see it, it it's a benefit for the consumer. But to be able to turn my blender on or my microwave on using my phone, I don't understand how that is beneficial to a consumer. Yeah, I think they're they're both important questions. And so obviously data is the new oil. Right. Yeah. We're trying to understand better about mm -hmm. consumer behaviors um, in all ways. Um, and in fact, we are underutilizing the wine industry and. Uh, as with everything, um, these great assets can be used for bad results. So we saw the Cambridge Analytica stuff, and that's kind of created the, the backlash of GDPR, which is the term from Europe trying to protect privacy. And then we have one in California that's coming out, I think, in January, a California Privacy Act, I think, or CPA, something like that, because it's been misused. But there's valuable data that comes on the consumer side, like, hey, by the way, you're overusing water. You could cut back a bit. Right. Right. And, and, and so the good uses from this data are also valuable. I mean, some of us in this room remember when Amazon first came out with, if you like this product, you also like this product. And the freak out that everyone, oh, my God, they're shopping. Our, they're, they're looking at our shopping history. I can't imagine Amazon now without that helpful piece where I don't want to see a Harlequin romance book. Maybe I'm looking for biographies. So I don't want you to show me what I don't want because we only have one valuable asset that's irreplaceable. It's time. I can replace money, I can replace, but time, that's the thing that's finite in the human condition for all of us. And reducing the, the energy to get what you want or need is super valuable. So is so for the wine business, then apps like Vivino or Delectable would be, sort of be similar in that you're able to see people in exactly what region are drinking at that particular time? Yeah, or maybe what else they might like also that they don't know that they like. I mean, you know, what else would you, you by the way, you drink Vermentino all the time. You should give this, you know, uh, pick pull a try. It's, in, you know, people that like that, you know, there's a lot of different people. Or, by the way, 
there's a pick pool near you or a Vermentino near you that you should try that's right down the street. Um, that access to that piece. Yeah, just there's so much information out there. It's a lot. You would just get so much high acid Chardonnay sold to you. <laughs> you lose all the, the the enamel on your teeth. It would be done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably gonna happen. Right. Anyway. It's gonna happen anyway. <laughs> it checks in the mail. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it's got. I mean, it's got to be compression. Sort of fed all this, right? That it's you're able to store all of this information, and then it's just a matter of how you're using it, right? Yeah. Look, data in aggregate is noise. Um, data without turning it into con- adding context to it and distilling it down is just noise. So that's the job, right? Take all of this stuff down and put it into a useful tool. I'm like. This person's important to you for this reason. You should call or talk to this account for this reason. You're going to lose this account for this reason. Or there's signs that it's going away. How can you get there and intervene to save it? So are are your, and do you call them clients of yours? People that use, uh, and you, are we talking about small businesses, larger businesses? So um, I love the wine industry, um, but I, I'm I'm the second CEO here. I, my job was to put was to be put here to really launch this and make this a viable, long term, sustainable business. So I actually only really work with the big wine groups. Mm-hmm. Um, someday I will release a product for the smaller wineries, but there's no confusion when I go into you know uh, you know Treasury or Gallo or Pernod Ricard or duckhorn or, or farniente what a consumer insight does and how to use it there's no they know that if i give them insights and their dtc business that lifted two to twenty percent that's meaningful dollars at that size level that's a lot of money i'm unlocking for small pieces and the same with the trade two to five twenty percent if i can unlock those so those are kind of our three categories um, it makes my job easier that's why i can be lean and mean and my goal is to build the sustainable product that they can self-serve and get these answers on their own all the time and then find a way to make it so I can bring little small bite-sized pieces to wineries because I've already lived twice through the uh, selling to small medium businesses right. you know I'm when I started uh, wine direct in 2002 I was like knocking the doors I'm like guys this internet thing is here we're gonna smoke it we're gonna sell so much wine online and they're like oh Paul you're so cute when that internet fag goes away come back and talk to us and then in 2009 I'm dropping in I'm like oh my god this social media is like the great Berlin Wall has been knocked down for wine we can talk to consumers all across the world oh Paul when that social media fag goes away give us a call Fortunately, I don't get the pinch cheek pinch anymore. Maybe. The the pinch cheek is a place where I feel like um, our listeners are missing out that this is right. a video podcast because that was really a great visual. <laughs> yeah, See, the only reason that Sam has a beard, right? <laughs> cheek protection. Uh, is it when in sort of dealing with the big guys because there's just more volume of data there's you know more more units more skews more production is it easier to distill that down into useful pieces is is it harder to take those bigger lessons and apply it to smaller wineries or is there is it there's some it's it's actually easier actually smaller wineries are easier to find the consumer insights about um, it's harder to impact their business with the gains that are meaningful because they're small businesses, right? right so 2% right. means something different at a large company than it does. The insights, though, I, interestingly enough, it's easier to find insights about wines $20 north. I can go on Twitter and I can find all of your wines that you're talking about. Someone's bragging about them on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, all in, in, in Delectable and Vivino and Seller Tracker. I mean, on bulletin boards, people are talking about these nice boutique wines. 
again, going back to BodaBox, finding who's talking about it at any meaningful frequency and other brands are talking about those price points is very challenging. Interesting. On a consumer insights perspective. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, on the trade in DTC, you know, obviously BodaBox doesn't sell directly to the consumer, but on the trade, you can see, measure the behaviors of accounts. But even then, they have most of that data already for the big guys. They're doing Nielsen right. and IRI, and, uh, you know, they know their national account sales. And, you know, that's where most of their volume's happening. It's not happening at the um, broad market, right. which is the hard part. Broad market means restaurants and retailers yeah, out there, little retailers. So it's a tough problem. It's, I, it's what I love about the job. Um, you know, right now we, we've just done a lot of studying with uh, buying behaviors. And what we find is that with every cohort, so we treat, you know, there's the big buyers, there's the consistent buyers, the casual buyers and the lurkers. With each cohort, at some point, there's this cliff where people stop buying. So based upon the behaviors, let's say it's 10 orders, three logins to the website, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's a giant cliff. They all fall off like almost 50% of the customers stop buying at uh, this magical point at wow. each cohort is and it's a different level at each varying degree and so i'm trying to get the team to call it the dodsing point i don't know if you guys know dodsing it's the, <laughs> the norwegian sport of jumping off of big um diving boards and trying oh, to yes. attract the attention it's it's a click hole bait if you go into uh, uh youtube right now but yeah dodsing d-o-d-s-i-n-g it's awesome Look it up after you've done listening to this yes. episode, right? <laughs> I don't want to lose you. Don't dodging this episode. <laughs> but how? Okay, I don't understand that. From what do you mean they're falling off a cliff at some point? So customers behave very similarly at different levels, and they have, they find you find patterns in everything. There's patterns in all life and all behaviors, and and you know too many people talk about. Um, customer groups in these big wide swaths and they're actually small small groupings of things so a big wide swath is talking about millennials or gen x right. a big wide swath is talking about white males 35 to 45 those are we all group into behavioral ways of doing things but when you group them in behavior you start to notice patterns mm -hmm. and so in the case of what i'm talking about there's a pattern of both restaurateurs and retailers or consumers they have all these buying layers that they do and at some point at this one special point, and I don't know why it is, at every different group, there's a cliff and they just fall, like half of them go away. They just like, maybe they're tired of the brand. Uh, maybe they've changed life goals. Maybe they've spent all their money for a period of time. Maybe they've moved on. I don't know the actual quantitative reason for it, but on a quantitative basis, there's a magical number, magical point where they just drop off 50%, like wow. a cliff. And then there, and there's a second one at another point where that another 50% fall off. So this is an interesting, we talk about in the wine industry as lifetime value right. somewhat, but right. it's not lifetime value. There's a, actually a, a key catalyst point where these people are gonna go and you can predict saying, oh my God, they're gonna leave. What can I do to remind them that we want you to stay? How can I keep you as as a member of my wine club, as a buying customer, et cetera? So that, it, it's okay. well, I was gonna say, is there, I always kind of notice these correlation of these decades multiple decades um, aged wineries um, and they all seem to have a time where they were definitely at their height and then they continue to make good wines but they just fall off as consumer just 
they look past them because there's always all these new brands. Like Heights and Chloe right. the Kenwoods, the yeah. you know now Kenwood. Benzigers are becoming that and stuff. And you know, is it problem. is it consolidation and is it when it becomes bought by a larger corporation, it just kind of gets forgotten about, or is it actually a, a kind of what you're saying is that you get to a point where the people have just stopped buying it because they've moved on to something else. So that's a different phenomenon in my in my opinion. So as we know. Um, you have to evolve, right? right? Darwinism occurs in every right. industry, and if you look at the Fortune 500 companies, 70% are new over the last decade. Right. Um, but what you see for companies that have longevity are two things. Either they've created this branding perspective where they're, they're the pinnacle, so whether it's Dom Perignon or we can name you know uh, Petrus or these right. things, that we're, they're the top of the hill, and even then they're maintaining that image, right? right? Or they're investing in R&D and in marketing to continue that. And the R&D means that they're looking at the next curve where they can touch, interact, and engage with their customers. Um, yeah. You know, Amazon's doing it. I think 25% of their business is R&D, right. you know, on the, of their profits go back to R&D. And the, the smart companies are doing really amazing things with it. So you look at Nike right now. In the last six years, Nike has moved 40% of its business to direct-to-consumer. Nike. Why did they do that? To your point, so that they can create a direct relationship with their customers to A, unlock some profit, but most importantly, so they can understand their customers directly through the data, through engagement, through interaction, through brand launches. Um, one of my favorite brands is one called Hint Water. I don't know if you guys know that. It's in Northern California. Um, it's a $120 million company, I think, and 40% of this is direct consumer. Water. Wow. That's $48 million of water shipping directly to consumers. Think about that for a second. That's insane and but awesome. How, and how do they do that? What is the benefit of this water? So the water is a, is a um, you know. It's got a flavor, right? It is a flavored That's water. It's a hint. It's a hint of. It's a hint of flavor. But it's 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 not chemicals. It's it's actually fruit oriented. So there's like a cucumber and a cherry. Uh, it's got all the right ingredients. It's very health conscious, uh, environmentally conscious. Um, and you can subscribe to it. You get it on a regular basis or you can try new products. And so they do really amazing things with the, their brand. So as one example, all of the the new flavor profiles, they test with direct consumer first. And if they're hit, they move them into Publix and three tier, which is interesting. Yeah. Another I mean, thing they do is it's they, not dissimilar to what the way wineries will do things. Not dissimilar right. at all. Yeah, right. On right. that yeah. piece, if you can do if you're in a growth pattern. Right? Uh, right. Or some of them, they keep small and they're seasonal or once a year, they'll do a blend of like kiwi and strawberry. And so you're waiting for your kiwi and strawberry hit once a year, whatever that is. And then more importantly, they use the data. So they'll walk into stores in the East Coast and or who doesn't carry them and say, look, we know we have this many customers in your neighborhood that buy wines yeah. at this frequency. If you put us on the shelf, we think we can. you can pull through X amount because we have the data to support that. So really smart, thoughtful. Yeah. They're um, expanding their business and they're still engaging with their direct-to-consumers. You know, I, I'm a big believer in this thing called digitally native vertical brands. I talk about it all the time. And what it is is it's brands that manufacture their goods and sell them direct, but they use digital. So we are, wineries are all of that except for the digital part. So if you think of those brands, it's like Warby Parker glasses, Casper mattresses, um, Allbirds shoes, Stance socks. You've seen these, right. uh, the Four Ocean bracelets, right. right? There you go, right there. And they get you. They you, you got caught on a digital ad. You're like, wow, I do. I want to pull a pound of trash out of the ocean. I'll is pay that twenty. What that is? Yep. Yeah, these were um, uh, gifts from my mom and my son. And Dane knows that I've watched these ads and bought one as a gift. And 
My mom's thoughtful. He's got $40 worth of plastic on his wrist right now. So he's got two bracelets. They're $20 a piece. I think one of those is the Orca one, and the other one is, I don't know what the other one is. The Penguin. The Penguin, yeah. So, and they... They, every every bracelet comes with who what animal they're saving with the ocean. They have a unique bracelet that you can buy all twelve months of bracelets in a bracelet club, two hundred forty dollars. Oh, yeah. They'll just keep sending them to you. It's it's my daughter's got me twice over, so I've I got we have a lot of bracelets in the house. <laughs> and, and and it's and and they're actually showing they're pulling garbage out of the ocean. You know? And those I mean, are made from the garbage. They're made they pull. from it. How do you keep it from going? Back. back? Yeah. Well, you hold it close yeah. to your heart. And you never let go of it, Sam. Okay. <laughs> Well, this episode will come out before holiday shipping is done. So, if you want right. to save some, right. save a sea turtle. Yeah, pull mm. some. Yeah, pull some plastic <laughs> out of the ocean. don't make me show you that video of the straw and the sea turtle. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. sorry. Okay, we get we get distracted. That's sometimes. okay. It's a good no, so, distraction. You know, so I'm just I'm still thinking about that. You know, the people dropping off a cliff. I'm thinking that the most valuable information in that scenario would be talking to those people that walked away and finding out why. That is a, one of the most valuable parts of the scenario. I think the other part is, as you see those people approaching that cliff, what is your intervention to stop the uh, percentage of them from going off the cliff? That's more important. And then, But to be able to do that, you would probably have to know why people have done that in the past, right? I, I, I think that that's longer term because it's going to be a fingerprint per brand. It's not going to be... I mean, there's there will be some behavioral pieces, but I think each brand will have its own kind of reasoning. But the intervention... All you're doing is reminding people that you're around and why they chose you in the first place. And let's say I save 5% of that 50%, and then I annualize that, compound that annually. That's a lot of customers going back into your bank account and that you guys are able to save. And making if you did your messaging right, you made them happy. I mean, the whole thing is about a value exchange between you and your customer, right? I'm giving you something nice. I'm making you feel good because I'm doing that thing, right? Whether it's plastic bracelets to pull ocean out of the you know, trash out of the ocean or wine that makes you feel good or the ma- day you met Sam and you got drunk, you know, uh, here in Napa at the third floor, right? Right. right. We're not there yet, it's, but... It's, it's <laughs> happened before. No, actually, i never been on the third floor in Napa. They usually don't let me... <laughs> never mind. When I, when I get this high in Napa, it's not an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> now, Sam, Sam, for you at 16600, do you, do you let some of your customers have access to your social media as far as like like Instagram would they be able to post something on your Instagram or they post it and just they post something on theirs and then tag you like have you ever thought about letting them have access you Uh, mean actually like giving setting up a uh, a, an account for 16600 that's all um, uh, customer right right so everybody gets the password and the log on and then you let them go loose. Right. So it almost creates a community. You can do that through a hashtag just as easily, I think, and cheaper. Right. And then you just try to make sure it doesn't get hijacked because that happens too, which right. ends in a bad place sometimes. Huh. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have, I have, it's funny, I now look, if I come up with what I think is a new hashtag, I look first and see what it is because um, I know with Shannon, there was a, um, there was an adult film actress, and she went by Shannon. And so in the early <laughs> days of Shannon, if you just put Shannon, you sometimes would end up with stuff about her. Um, Remember the M&M's campaign where the, anything that came from the social feed that had the hashtag showed up on their homepage of their website? <laughs> And then people have quickly realized that they could put some. Yeah, exactly. They didn't put a filtration system right. in. Yeah, yeah. Was the Shen, Was she blonde? 
I don't recall, to be quite honest. It okay. was a few years ago. He didn't I, look. I, I, went, in, I <laughs> yeah, went straight right. to Blanc, Shannon Blanc, Blanc immediately. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and she spelled it right. Two N's, one N. Yeah, yeah. How funny. Yeah, we had that problem, too. At Vintink, we uh, worked with Naked Wines, and we yeah. were harvesting all the, the words from the internet. So you start with the names of the brands, and uh, Naked Wines had, like, Orgasm and, you know, um, you know Menage aux Trois and, and right. you know, a lot of, like, really... Um, not necessarily salacious words, but when you harvest the internet for those words, you, you get a lot of you get a lot dangerous of dangerous water. Yeah, you're, 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 yeah, it makes it so you know helps you not sell wine to kids, right? Right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Hopefully, yeah. I remember that day we turned on the servers and they were just grinding to a halt. We're like, what? I didn't know so many people are talking about wine, and it wasn't. It wasn't the wine. It wasn't the wine. <laughs> we had to put a lot of filters on. How did you get started in the wine industry? What did you do? What did you do coming out of school? Yeah, so I grew up here in Napa, um, and I wanted what to. High, what high school did you go to? Vintage High. Okay. okay. So no, I went to Justin for about a year and a yeah, half, and okay. then we uh, mutually parted ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I went to. Uh, I grew up here in Napa, but I um, I wasn't from a wine family, and uh, I was going to college at UCLA. Uh, for film school um, and I met John Wright who founded Domain Chandon in USA and he hired me as a sales rep and I needed a job and so that was the beginning of my wine career and then um, after college I went to work for Nibam Coppola mm-hmm. with Earl Martin where I learned a ton and he, he had me in this kind of skunk works role where he kept handing me all these amazing projects so I got this cross training of all these different attributes of a winery and um, one day he gave me the wine club and back in the mid 90s, getting the wine club was like the scarlet letter. Yeah. You were instantly Quasimodo. No one liked you. Uh, it was the most terrible thing to have. But, you know, we. Wait, wait, wait. Will you explain that a little bit? Because why was why was well, from a like within the in, within the business or because of the, the members didn't like that? No, the members loved wine club. Okay. The business itself, it was this kind of like. Um, so you remember wine clubs are a growth of something that they weren't meant to be originally. They were originally hospitality centers for trade. Right. And then tourists started showing up. They're like, heck, we should put some wine in people's mouths and start selling wine. They were always a hospitality angle. And when it moved into the subscription model services, there was this tinge of like, we're signing all these people up. And even though the ownership knew it was profitable, no one liked to sell the wine club. No one liked the wine club manager's goals and aspirations saying, look, I need you to sign up this many per day. Right. It was very nascent. It was very early days. Huh. So it was like really frowned upon. You're trying to sell me like subscriptions, like a magazine. It was it's almost like a um, timeshare. Yeah, it was like, a, and they were and they were really reticent against it. And the whole culture of the the company was. Huh. And then they, you had the winery where you know how much is being allocated. There's a lot of shipping problems, and there's all these added layers of what then was thought to be work. Now it's thought to be a profit center. Right. right. Um, so it was not exactly. Um, you know, and then you had to create new programs, so they'd have to identify if it was a wine club member or not. Um, back then, even then, when um, Nibam Coppola did their first wine club, um, they used to hand key in the credit cards, so it'd take two weeks to tap in the credit cards. Yeah. I, I did that when we had like twenty five members. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was still, and, and it still took two weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So you can see it was a really yeah. interesting piece. And then I went on to work for um, wine doc, winechopper.com, which merged with wine.com. And I fully unleashed the geek in me and became a dot communist like everybody else. Um, and then I founded WineDirect. I decided I didn't want to be the guy that made a single site 
uh, for wine to sell wine. I wanted to be Levi Strauss and sell the tools to people. Right. And that's I felt that that was the the future that the wine industry was going to open up for the wineries, and that they should have economical tools so they could compete in a meaningful way. Um, but like I said, it was it was a fascinating days. I mean, when we sold. Um, uh, e-commerce from Wine Direct. Uh, websites were going for five hundred thousand dollars a website, so only the big guys were putting them up. And then when you put them up, you'd have to have a hire a person to go make the changes, even basic words or pictures. And we said, let's take that away. Let's commoditize that. So you have here's a system. It's got content you can type like Word. And I know that sounds like stupidly ridiculous now, but like back then it was earth shattering. We took the website cost from five hundred k to twenty five k to five k. And that's been that was that's where we kind of pressed ahead. Hmm. And did you what was funding like? Were you getting funding for these things that you were doing, or was this you something you you funded yourself? So both. Um, so originally, the original idea we funded ourselves uh, for the first year, and then we hit about I think it was about a couple hundred wineries or 150 wineries approximately, and um, the Supreme Court hearing was entering the docket around 2005 and um, we were partnered with 1-800-Flowers. And so I called an old mentor of mine, a gentleman named Mike Moon, uh, who owns Lunar Vineyards. And, okay. or, or, I don't know if he still does, but he did. Right. And um, I said, hey, I need some advice. And I flew down to um, his house and told him the story about Granholm and what was gonna happen and what it meant for this thing called direct-to-trade. And he said, you don't need my advice, you need my money. So him and his friends got together and they put the first $1.56 million into Wine Direct. Mm -hmm. And then we grew to 800 and then we uh, got venture capital and private equity money. Um, so I'm one of probably, I think there's six of us now that have raised over $10 million for Wine Tech. So wow. myself, Heine, I raised, what was it, 15.6 total. Um, and it's still around. Wine Direct exists today. It's still the biggest. It's actually my Frankenstein monster. Um, it bought one of our competitors. It's, it's my, it's mine and Andrew Campus's Frankenstein monster because it bought VIN65, which was our competitor. And Andrew and I were friends. And the collision between both those things <laughs> and what it is today is not what we intended it to be. So both of us get to look at that. Like I say, it's our Frankenstein monster. <laughs> chasing you around yeah 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 <laughs> forever <laughs> so um any uh, thoughts about you know here it is the end of the decade we're in, entering a new decade oh yeah um, last last full moon of the decade last last night. Full we moon. couldn't see it of course but it's, it's right. at 12 12 on 12 12 12 12 was it 12 12 at night or is it 12 12 was it a minute ago as we we're recording no it's at night 12 12 tonight yeah or was it last night? No, last 12, night. So it was last, last night. 12, yeah, yeah, it's already It was passed, exactly yeah. 12 hours ago yeah, as, okay. we, as yeah. we speak. Oh, wow. we speak. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> <laughs> 12 hours ago from 12 12. 12 hours ago, 12 12, the last 12, full moon. Of, That's amazing. Uh, weird. <laughs> that is weird, isn't it? Yeah. There's a black cat when I walk outside. I'm going to go the other direction. <laughs> if there are aliens outside, yeah. that's what I'm more worried yes. about. Really. Well, uh, you know, take us away, end it all. <laughs> Ready. Exactly. <laughs> So any any thoughts on the coming decade? Any you want to throw out any um, predictors or yes. changes or and that's for Brian and Sam also. I figure we talk about this over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, winter is coming. I keep saying this over and over again. Winter is coming, and we are about to face a market we've never seen before in wine industry history, and it's com competition from within. There are more wineries than we've ever seen in Napa, Sonoma, Santa Barbara. There are more international wineries coming to the U.S. market, but it's not just 
the internal competitiveness. It's we're fighting mouth share against white claw, against cannabis. We're fighting mouth share against mouth share. I like that term. Yeah, and stomach share, anti temperance. We're trying to fight for all these dollars and mind share and mouth share. You know, craft spirits, craft beers, right. um, kombucha. I mean, if you go into booch, the booch. Yeah, but it, it, Whole Foods has a whole like wall of it a wall of kombucha yeah. i mean these are all competing for our stomach and our mouth and our dollar right right and we've never seen it. not to mention less routes to market not to mention this future retailer competitive set not to mention the economy slowing down for wine or at least the the flattening for our wine sales right. and it's we have to get smart and instead of you know eating our own which is what we're gonna we're starting to do right now cannibalizing from each other we should look how to expand the category how to make it sustainable and we have a unique product that has a great social contract with consumers that's unlike anyone else. It's made to share. We're very good about our social contract. We're very good about like don't over drink. We're very good about all the pieces about enjoyment and what this means for consuming this versus white claw or you know a craft spirit. So right. we have a lot of advantages, um, but we have to take it. We have to take advantage of those sooner. It's good. It's good insight, Sam. Yeah, I mean, um, I definitely feel like a, a softening of this market is 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 coming it's happening um you know it's it's more competitive than ever out there um two big harvests two big harvests are have a big part of it Oof. um you know the the result of the fires um you know pushing people away from napa and sonoma and and you know so there's there's these emerging regions or you know regions coming in a way that um you know they've been there for a while, but are sort of gaining mouth share like that. I'm gonna use that all the can, time. Can I, can I? Yeah. You know, you're right. The fires have caused us a problem, but we caused our own problem by not creating a, a net in a way to keep touching customers. Right. Right. I mean that that model and Rob McMillan and I talk about that. What an inefficient model it is to have people fly here to come find our wines. How do we right. get that customer in? New York City to buy our wine, sight unseen, taste unseen, without an amazing, crazy score that we create a relationship with them. That's the fundamental problem that we need to find. Right. So what are your, I mean, you know, without giving away all of the secret sauce, what are some of your... <laughs> without us having to write a check. Right. 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 No, <laughs> but let me take notes. Hold on a second. You gave me this nice notepad. No, no pen, though. No so pen. Yeah, why? That's why we record the show. Oh, that's I'll why listen. we record the show. <laughs> okay. I'll listen. I'll listen back. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's... Um, three components about this that are really key. I think the first one is really understanding that we have a value exchange to give with customers beyond just wine, whether that's our personality, whether that's additional items in the box, the experience, the story, all of these components that we, and that's fundamental. And I think we've forgotten that. We think that the wine is front and center. It's about the cohesion of all this stuff. People don't experience wine like this small amount of enophiles. It's about, you know, I, I even me, I, I'm an enophile sometimes, but I like to just have a glass of wine with my wife a lot of times or just a glass of wine with you guys and right. share it and laugh and have a great time, right? It's communal. Um, the second one is we have to understand that our, the tasting room is not direct to consumer. The borders that ended the tasting room walls are, are limiting. We need to use the tools that are out there that everyone else is using, which is digital. And I say that like e-commerce, search, um, social, and mobile, all of those components. And every one of us in this room, you, you guys all have smartphones. I bet you guys have all logged into social media at least once this week. You probably shopped on Amazon for- Once today, yeah. only once today. Yeah. Christmas. Right. I mean, it's it's ridiculous our industry uses these tools for ourselves, 
And I can't, there's not a winery I can say, are you really killing it with any of those four things? Right. And it's because we're not investing in it. Right. So that's the last part. We need to culturally change our businesses to say, how do we invest into tomorrow to continue to evolve? And that means investing in resources, people, you know. So I know that you work on the business side of this, but what does that mean from a consumer? Because most, you know, we, sure. a lot of people who listen to this, I don't know, I think they're consumers. Um, I think that's, you know, our, our listener base is people who are, who are drinking wine. What does that mean for them, you know, back home in, in St. Louis and, and, you know, Honolulu or wherever they are? How does their favorite wineries how do they look? How do they get in touch with them in the next decade? Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, drink more wine. Yes. Let's start with that. Introduce yeah. your friends to wine. Have Less more wine. Claw. Yeah, and have more wine dinners. I mean, really bring out the magic of that. Um, try to reward brands you like, because what we have is, you know, in, in a world of infinite choices, of course, we're infinitely promiscuous in the wine industry. Right. I mean, to be fair, right. with all the choices. so And get, always will be. And always will be. It's yeah. it's the benefit and curse of what this industry will be for us as winery people. But also try to reward your brands, whether it's through sharing or not, so that they can be sustainable. And then how do you create a relationship with that brand? You can find them through Google. And if they're not doing a good job in e-commerce, if they're not doing a good job in social, call them out. Talk to them on those places where they should learn not only the good, but also the bad. And then it hopefully they'll reward you, you know, by doing a better job at, at a minimum. And if not, better relationship with you so that when you do come to Napa or when they come to your market, you can actually engage with them one on one with those strong connections I talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah it's the it's the the scores. You know, we used to just kind of look at the scores of the wines, you know, and know what we wanted to buy because we saw stuff that had a 92 or 93 or 96 or whatever it was. And now there's everything has a, a fewer a, reviewers, more wines. I don't know how much more, people even pay attention. More 92s. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, it's a three point scale now. If you're not 98, 99, 100. And even then go on wine, still sold out wine access, all those guys, there's 98, 99, 100 point wine selling for half price. So, the three-point scale is only the thing that moves the needle now, somewhat. Right. Well, and I think that, um, and it's something that I talk about a lot with my customers, and um, you know, I think is maybe one of the reasons this podcast happens and is, has the success that we've had is there is and needs to be more instead of competition and cannibalism within the you know uh, co cooperation and collaboration between brands with uh similar values and and similar identities and and you know so i tell people all the time as much as i would love that every night of the week you drank at least two bottles of 16600 <laughs> maybe uh, three maybe three go for the six pack um it, it's just that's not that's not what how wine consumers behave right you the whole idea is to open up you know, a, a three, three bottles from three different producers, right? Or you know, and you know whether it's a vertical or whether you're tasting, you know, the same variety from different places. I mean, that's what this exploration is about. So, you know, I actually enjoy sending our customers to places whose you know brands that, and really for me, you know, it's all about the farming, right? But brands whose whose values mirror right. ours, right? That's awesome. I think that that's what we need more of, for sure. And I think we need more collaboration, not just on that, but like we're very fortunate in new world countries that we share how to do a better job. And it all comes from, I think, Robert Mondavi. When he came to Napa, he's like, here's barrels that worked. 
here's tanks that worked. And, and the culture of all new world countries is a, is a sharing culture. Right. But what we're not sharing is our ability to band together to do things in, in meaningful ways. So like, if you look at the software vendors for direct-to-consumer, there's 39 vendors to service 10,000 wires in the United States. It's unsustainable, right? So we should get a bunch of wires together and say, hey, we're all on this one platform and we should ask for these three features this year. If they can provide it, we'll keep subscribing. If not, we move to the next one. So almost like a bully pulpit or, or collective bargaining. Mm. Buyer's cartel. Yeah, buyer's cartel. Buyers, and that we should do that with events. There's a bunch of wine events that are you know trying to steal from, take from, some are doing good jobs, but we're getting hammered by all these different things. And if we organize as an industry, or even a small group, even small pockets, right. we would do a better job. Right, that's interesting. Yeah. That's good That's good information. I, I wanted to ask you a question. What do you think of natural wine? I'm just kidding. <laughs> we should just have an entire series where we talk about that. You know, um, especially given my family history. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's really fascinating to see where it's going and, and sort of what it's become in the last five years. Is it the White Claw of wine? I, I mean, in a lot of ways, um, is it the White Claw of wine? I'm going to get death threats if I... Um, <laughs> well, I, I think it's interesting, I, and I haven't read the article yet, but it seems that Alice Faring wrote this article about is natural wine dead, and then all the natural winemakers all turned on her. Well, <laughs> you know, there, there's probably more to that in general. But I, I think that the biggest problem that natural wine has is that it's become a stylistic uh, category as opposed to uh, a farming and, and production or category. Philosophical. Or a philosophical category. Yeah. Um, you know, and the thing that has been lost in most of the conversations about natural wine, and you, you dig and you... you all these articles, you know, it's been, you know, the New Yorker, the mm -hmm. you know, all these magazines that are writing about it lately, you know, there'll be some throwaway line in that article somewhere where it's like they talk about what natural wine is, and then you know, you know sometimes comes from organic grapes. Well, none of what you do in the cellar has any ma doesn't matter if you want to be natural wine and you're not using organic grapes, or if it's like oh well it's sustainably farmed, or and you know this is something that there's people who. Um, will disagree strongly with me on this, but if it's not certified, there's no, so, you, you know, oh, you, it's organic, but it's not certified. Right. I, that doesn't mean anything to me either. Right. So um, I think that what will, what will kill natural wine as a, you know, is it becoming a style and not uh, a philosophy. I, um, I love many natural wines. I love some of the core tenets of natural wine uh, as it relates mostly to some of the farming practices. Um, right. Not all of them, to be fair. Um, I think that, um, you know, as, as a winemaker told me in um, uh, Italy or in uh, Portugal, not everything that nature makes is good <laughs> and not everything that man makes is bad. Right. And we've somehow, it, it's almost like a, an anti-vaxxer make America great and I hate to say that by, by creating it as a philosophy versus saying like there are elements of it that are good and we want to get back to those elements. But you know what, if your fermentation stuck, right. Uh, you want to use something to make uh, that's money for you. And by the way, and by the way, if you want to make a wine that tastes good and doesn't have mousiness, right. th there are scientific ways to and do that. Avoid those consumer clips. Right. Yeah. Um, Anyways. And, I, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you look at from where, you know, when my uncle and my dad started Katuri Winery in 1979 and mm -hmm. there wasn't really any, you know, nobody called it natural wine and nobody really knew what, just thought they were crazy hippies. Um, where the wine industry is now, 
for the most part, quality wine is driven by a really good farming and B not having to manipulate in the cellar too much. Um, so, you know, the effects of what, you know, the natural wine movement in that regard, you know, people are making cleaner using, you know, cleaner wine, using less sulfur, you know, farming better, you know, exploring native yeast. I mean, even Opus Uh, one has like cultured, cultured their ambient yeast from their favorite block. And that's what they're, they're inoculating with now. So from that standpoint, natural wine has been, been great. But the specious claims about it are not good. Yeah, the health benefits, the health benefits, the, uh, the the dry farmed wines uh, company or is like copper usage and all that. Yeah, yeah it's all it's it's. Uh, no, I, it's an interesting question because it, right. it 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 overperforms in press a hundred to one versus oh, consumer it's demand. amazing, right? It's it's crazy. But well, crazy. That has to do with the labels. Number one, <laughs> the labels on natural wines for for the most part are pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's labels on many wines that are pretty cool. I think yeah, but I don't think I don't think they're as creative as the natural wine um, movement. I, mm. th- their labels are unique, distinctive, mm. and well, that's because they're it's and they're non-traditional. The they're totally non-traditional, right? I mean, that is one thing. It is it's non-traditional. Right. It's it's the disruptor, you know. I but thought I'd introduce some controversial topics, like, no, and I wanted to shake it up at the but end. Our, but our con- make it to this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> our conversation usually ends because we have no idea what natural wine means. We there's no there's nothing. There is no press, real There's plan. nothing written down that says Nobody it is does. this. <laughs> <laughs> and so you you know we can chase our tail, but we don't know exactly. The most what. important thing about making a natural wine is calling it a natural wine. Right. Right. I mean that's the and and. But the, what is the line the, you always say, Sam? When is it that when is it that organic grapes will be just just grapes and and and? Oh right, no no no! Right. So, so I heard Sam say this one day in the tasting room is that he he was kind of fired up and if you'll allow me, oh, go for it. What did I say? <laughs> I don't remember. I can see him getting fired Sam, up over here right now. He's all. <laughs> Sam said, uh, you know, uh, I don't know why we have to be called organic farmers. He said conventional farmers should be called should be called chemical farmers. Right, we right, should definitely. just be the farmers right. because we're doing it this way, the way that you're supposed to be doing it. Right. Yeah. That why aren't they putting on their label chemically line. farmed? Right. That's a great line. We should just have on there that, you know. I got one good line a month. That's my, that's my yeah. goal. That's better than me. Uh, it might have yeah. been a month and a half ago. All right, so yeah, you, all right, all right well, I'm due. I'm due. <laughs> one of these days, <laughs> it's coming. Definitely do. <laughs> well, this has been awesome. Thank no. you very much. Well, thanks for Paul. having me. I really appreciate should it. Should we talk about we, what we're drinking? Yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah, you, this what? was a uh, 2015 Carignan from Sandlands, Contra Costa County wine. So I don't know if the that counter means, coast, um, <laughs> own rooted. Yeah, um, I don't know if that means that it's from uh, Evangelo or not. Um, I know he gets some fruit from it out there. Um, you know, he never puts the vineyard name on it typically, or if he does, it's. I it's thought I thought I've wine. seen Evangelo on some okay. of his labels before. What um, goes into the selection process for the wines you pick for the days? <laughs> Highly scientific, well, right? Data driven. Something, uh, <laughs> something we want to taste. <laughs> something that you know somebody left at uh, Sante with a business card taped to it for Brian to buy. Right. Um, something know, we're pushing. Right. New. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wines that we're trying to sell. Um, well, and Oprah, those are all Oprah Winfrey sometimes <laughs> yeah. pushes the agenda. Yeah. Exactly. O- what? Oprah did select uh, Bart's wine as one of the 
wines that you had to have at Thanksgiving. Oh, really? Yeah. How'd that do for the sales? Did it? It did very well for the sales. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. good. To hear. We sell some for, to sale right. to sell. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. But if I was a very large uh, marketing-driven company, I'd probably be sold out two years ago with it. But that's all right. I, Paul, I brought you a bottle, so you can. <laughs> thank you. you get a Chenin Blanc, and you get a Chenin Blanc. <laughs> also goes well with the Christmas dinner. Right. right. And just don't go for the hashtag Shannon by itself yeah. right? <laughs> when you're drinking it. That's probably been cleaned up. They cleaned up. Yeah. No, they did. No, they did. They definitely did not. No, and, and Sam actually, as we were, as Bart and I were leaving the tasting house, and I asked Sam, should I grab a bottle? And I didn't um, respond. Well, yeah, and you were a little bit too late. We were already on the road because you said grab that natural wine that you got at Miracle yeah, Club, yeah. which would have been fun. That would have been fun, especially where this conversation went. Yeah. So yeah. that last bottle that we opened from Miracle Plum. Right. The Marin County. Right. Um, oh, a, the, uh, the, the... About a third flaw? of it. it wasn't was the... the f- yeah. No. Flawed? The flawed. Flaw winery. Or the flaw wine. No. Uh, uh, benevolent, benign about, neglect? I don't was know. Was it called flawed wine or the, was it a flawed wine? wine? The, no, it was called... The, the name on the front of the label was a bear um, on roller skates and okay. it was called flaw. And it looked like the bear had scratched it. Okay. Natural wine from... Marin County. Uh, Point Reyes. Uh, Point Reyes. Point Reyes. Uh, station. Station. Point so Reyes the station. last third of it sat on my counter until, so it's been a week, over a week, and um, I had a glass of it uh, t- Tuesday night. Still alive. Still a bunch of acid. Still got still, a bunch of verve. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it certainly does. Yeah. So. Well, that was just, we, we would love to get a hold of that winemaker just for the simple, we've only tried one wine, but the story about using the raw, raw, handmade American barrels. oak, right? He's like making his own barrels. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. that's just, cool. Yeah, totally. Just that's the, cool. Just the concept. I and mean, then I, I just maybe because that's what I was tasting was just the raw American. Oak yeah, club. maybe. And just from <laughs> I, knowing, I still uh, see the splinters in your teeth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I can't believe that it has a barrel with roller skates and it's and it's not claw that it says flaw flaws. We're, flaws we're trusting claw, we're trusting yeah. bart and his uh i think it was and we, his we use of the it. american right. language <laughs> <laughs> which we all know is suspect <laughs> how many glasses into <laughs> it <laughs> before you looked at the label yeah, well, public education man <laughs> class 83 <laughs> Go Trojans. That's hilarious. All right, and you guys, let's get any shout-outs you want to get. Uh, Paul, uh, you want to say hello to anyone or give uh, any shout-outs? Get any uh, events, any conferences? G- contact info for people where, maybe where to find you, you on the interwebs. You can find me on social media everywhere. I, I, fortunately, I'm the only Paul Mabry in the United States, but um, I, I'm most often found on Twitter at P-M-A-B-R-A-Y. Again, P-M-A-B-R-A-Y. And for shout-outs... Um, if you guys want to see the forecast of the future of wine online, even though I've given some hints of it in January, there's the big Silicon Valley bank report that right. I, I get to sit as the skinny Ed McMahon for Rob McMillan is, um, and so uh, get to talk about the future. And he just finished the report up, and it's it's the seminal report of the year, I would say, and right. telling what's going on in the wine industry. And we'll be back next so, year. Yes. Good. Yeah. That, so that was the that was the one where. Yeah. There was like rumblings that it wasn't. This was going to last uh, one. People hadn't responded to the survey and stuff, right? This is why we can't have nice things. I mean, this is really. I actually really come blew up on. I mean, the amount of money and effort and energy that Silicon Valley does to do this free report is pretty ex- extraordinary, actually. And it gives us guidance about economic trends, about great prices, about all these. And he spends a lot of time on it. Yeah, just in his money and his time and his energy, and people 
weren't responding. And I, we actually kind of, I threw a fit for sure yeah. on social multiple times. Um, he didn't, he was very kind about his, he wrote a blog post saying, I don't know if we should continue this asking the industry. And I think between him writing the kind post and me saying, guys, this is a gift. We should capitalize. It doesn't take that long to do it. Um, it got I'll, back. I'll admit I hadn't done my survey I, I, until, until that until I saw sort that of social media thing. storm Sorry. hit. Yeah. No, no, that's, I mean, you know, I mean, especially what it was October. Yeah, uh, but I mean, it's 15 minutes at night. Yeah, it was. Glass uh, of wine. I, I yeah. think I, I probably did it over my cup of coffee yeah, and exactly. on my phone. Um, but and it, I do, you know, I, I read it when it comes out. So. People just don't want to be bothered, though. You know, this happened to me with the with the census. I actually had a woman show up at my house and wanted me to participate in the census, was wondering when my daughter and my wife would be home so that she could come over and talk to us. So I was, you know, I I was caught off guard when I answered the door. And so I was like, OK, Did yeah, you, have, you know, it sounds like good. Pants on, right? <clears throat> Check this out. Ish, I, ish. As I'm getting a far, further along in the conversation, I'm thinking, God, I don't want to be involved in this. And, and I had no reason except for the fact that it, it's like my day off and I'm finding myself talking to the stranger at the door. And so then she asked for my phone number. I gave her the wrong phone number. Okay. With like three numbers. Uh, intentionally? Intentionally. Uh-huh. Intentionally That's wrong. That's why she called me. Oh my God. She <laughs> called me a couple weeks later and said, oh, I, she must have researched and found out what my actual phone number was and says, oh, I had the wrong number for you. So when can I come and sit down? You know, and I said, well, what exactly is it that you want to know? And she, so then she started in on it. Well, I wanted to know this and I just needed this. And I said, you know what? I just, uh, again, it was another time where I'm like, I'm, there's so many other things that I want to be doing right now. Sitting here talking on the phone is not one of them. So I said, you know, I just don't want to be involved hung up the phone and then i saw i think it was uh who's the guy that's on um sundays on hbo or showtime he does the weekly uh he used to be on john John oliver Oliver did a report on the census and how important it was and and i felt so guilty did you call her back i'm gonna call her back because no one really explained and i guess that was it is that no one really explained to me why it was important for me to participate in that. And it sounds like that's kind of what you guys are talking about is people just sort of were taking it for granted. This report was going to come out, but then weren't understanding the reason that they had to be involved and put input, participate participate in it. Like the grape crush report. Yeah. So, you know, just a little, I think that's sitting on my desk right now. Yeah. Just a little nugget of knowledge. If you, you know, if you preface something with saying, you know what, this is really important. You, and this is why. Well, and th- it's and the then, only way we find these things out, right? right. Is people have to respond. Well, not right. just yeah, and we have to hit someone over that message again and again. It's a very noisy. It's the noisiest time in human history, actually. I mean, yeah. we're getting messages yeah. from the internet, from our phones, from everywhere. Our refrigerators, yeah. our watches, our microwaves, our blender, blender, <laughs> right? And like you said, the the most important thing for us right now is our time, and and someone's got to make a, make a case for mm-hmm. my time. Yeah. Yeah. All right, there guys, I want to get a shout out to uh, Wine Zulu, Z-O-O-L-L-O, if you want to come take a tour here in, they're an unofficial sponsor at this point of the show. Um, of <laughs> <laughs> Psalm Guided Tours, which- Take us on a ride somewhere or which something. Which actually, uh, so Mark is very curious about doing something involved with 16600 and came in and sort of staying a little bit further on that side. Right. Um, so Got some four wheel drive. Love to see that become successful. Um, Four wheel drive, I don't know about. We can use one of your ATVs or Max, right. one of Max's ATVs. Yeah. Do you mind if I throw another shout out? Please. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I don't know if you guys, I would love to have you guys come visit my wife's winery. She uh, worked. 
you yeah. know, I, I knew your wife. It's a fairly new job for her. Yeah, is that right? she's she's the CEO of Donham. Yeah, Diana Carnero. No. Oh. Okay, I have so. I have friends that work there. Oh, good. Okay, Brandon was the was the assistant psalm at Sante, and now he oh, yeah. is working there. Yeah. And then Thomas was managing Sante, and now Thomas Tom is over Som. there. It seems like everyone's sort of, all the psalms are moving into winery positions. Yeah, it's a great wine. If you've never been there, we're oh. calling it one of the seven wonders of Northern California. I mean, it's... And she came on after Anne... Lower Rocky left. Is that correct? Yeah, they had a small crossover okay. for a short yeah. period of time. Yeah. And, um, well, I thought he was going to say a small uh, confrontation. No, no. Um, she, <laughs> they were in fact, jousting in front of a giant a, sculpture. A wonderful email exchange even yesterday. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but um, the sculpture garden there is next level, and the wines are very beautiful, as you guys know. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, it, it's a pretty magical place. Yeah. I mean. That and Palmas, by the way, if you haven't done Palmas yet as a tour, yeah, I, I, oh my I gosh. need to go see that. Wait, what so. is that? I don't. So know these are that. we're starting to call these the Seven Wonders of Northern California. So Donham is one of them with the sculpture garden that's just, I mean, I can't even describe the Louis Bourgeois, the um, uh, you know, Ai Weiwei. I mean, these these are just next level things. Uh, Palmas is a winery over in Coombsville. Uh, it's the tallest winery in the world, I think, twenty eight stories, all underground. All and all, um, uh, what it's like a nuclear missile silo. Well, look, if there's a zombie apocalypse, I'm meeting you guys there because yeah. it's all water neutral, but it's 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 a beautiful winery as well. Um, but just magnificent, interesting, fascinating. It's, and it's, this is where they like project onto the walls above yeah. the tanks what's going on in the tanks. That's and stuff exactly like that. right. It's like a lazy Susan of the tanks, which right. is also pretty incredible. Um, and then they have these IMAX cameras that shoot above the tanks to tell you. Uh, all of the harvesting stuff, what's going on in the tanks at the time? It's, it's, it's another magical place. Of the, those are two of the seven wonders. Is it is it a hard wine to get? Is it like extremely allocated the wines at Plumas? I don't know if I'd say. I, I mean, you'll have to ask them. I, I don't know if it's extremely allocated, but of course they're smaller production wines. Okay, but sure. if I mention your name, they might let me. Uh... <laughs> ask ask for Jordan there. He's awesome. Okay, Jordan's a, a king. Okay, cool. No, and they're good people too. I mean. See, you planted a seed. Yes. You've, you've put a little seats. breadcrumb in front of me. Yeah, and so now, well, Donham, I'm extremely familiar with, and I absolutely love the wines. But yeah, that's a new one for me. So, okay, good. cool. Cool. Well, can we, well, what are the other five? Just So that's still kind of shaken out, actually, okay. to be honest with you, because we, we we figured we'd emulate this. Uh, this is still me. That, chance, actually, it's, when I say we, it's actually me that started this there's thing. Still, there's still a chance. Yeah, there's still, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> so no it was I was you know I, I live I work in the wine industry I, I go to wineries all the time and, and some are ridiculous and some are but like ones that just wow you I mean I've been I've traveled all over the world I've seen lots of wineries so when you see them and you're like this experience is different than anywhere else you go so it's, it was actually started I, I started to name them all hey babe your winery is one of these seven wonders you know, you're crazy and so I started to like add them to them one by one and I we still haven't gotten all of them but you know, I, I think Hess is probably one of those seven wonders too. Even though that that four story art yeah. exhibit is fascinating and amazing as well. Um, you know, some of them were trying to. I, I this is me again. It's not it's not named by the. You know, what should fit in there? Should it be a commercial winery? I, you know, I'm kind of thinking as much as it, it is manufactured the Costello is a pretty amazing experience if you've been right. to whether you like it or not right. or you think it's tourist it's the most important first stop for any Napa trip right yeah I, you've never been here go there and then start it's the number one tourist destination for wineries in Napa Valley so that's probably number four I mean and it it, it, it exists on its own and has its own kind of you know right scenario that you know but it's still 
pretty magical if you've done the tour in any way and you've done the dungeon or you know the, the way they do it and they take you through they've actually embraced that kind of tourist and and wine diehards would say oh it's about the wine well that experience most people go buy a lot of wine from there <laughs> and the wines are there are great wines there yeah like, i was actually i was there great I wines was, there I, I haven't had a lot of it but i was very pleasantly surprised by a glass of castello that somebody well, well brooks painter was the winemaker there right yeah 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 and i think still is and you know brooks was He's at talented. stag's leap and yeah. was at um opus one and so yeah, he's very talented. Pretty shitty, pretty shitty resume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So those those are four that we have That's kind cool. of in the head. Now we're trying to figure out the other. Th- well, we I say this like a macro we. <laughs> so if I the, keep the talking, royal we. Yeah, if right. I keep if I keep saying it enough times, frequently and often enough, right. you, know, you know, there'll be more. The Paul and Maybray. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, well, and you got to be careful to if you throw out a real small one, you just might blow it up. I mean, back in the day, like Kaz going and tasting in his garage, if you. You know, if you mentioned something, if he got a, the guy would, he, he wouldn't know what to do. Or Caldwell, where he's throwing an F-bomb every other right. word. You know, I mean, to be honest with you, that might, yeah. be, that might be one of the wonders in itself. Right, exactly. <laughs> how does he say fuck that many times? I, I don't know how he does, but That's it's That's why amazing. he and my dad get along so well. It's, a, it's amazing, isn't it? It, 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 it? It's like, what if you don't do a tour with him, you're not doing wine in Coombsville, to be honest with you. Well, let's, let's um, definitely get a announcement out for Vinyl Sunday uh, for December 22nd, which is winter, a, the winter wonderland vin- first ever yeah. wintertime vinyl Sunday. Yeah. We, we're, we're building a tent. Wait, I'm curious how this whole thing's going to shake out, but <laughs> you mean you're renting a tent? What or is vinyl Sunday? So vinyl Sunday is, uh, the events we do at my tasting room. Um, where you know we we have this giant collection of records and it started out just like playing the records on Sundays but we play them all the time now um so we get a there's music there's food um it's you know it's a wine club m- member party it's also really like high, you know a locals thing so um, if you drop a password you can get in pretty much you had to say what's the password hello uh, yeah <laughs> okay hi can i have some grenache please um yeah. And you know, that's the thing. What it's Audu Tet. Audu Tet. Yeah, exactly. And can you spell combi? You can come in. Um, <laughs> the the thing that I didn't realize when we started is it's very much like a locals uh, party because because locals don't make tasting appointments very often unless they have friends in town or something. Um, yeah. We get a lot of the local crowd coming and, and hanging out. And, that's cool. Um, yeah, it's a good it's a good time. Very very casual. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to come and hang. I'm yeah, December twenty second. We're gonna be in a tent. And we're gonna listen to music. We got. Uh, you don't even have to wear tie dye. You don't have to wear tie dye, although it's encouraged. Um, <laughs> but it's gonna be cold, so maybe a tie dye sweatshirt. Uh, we have <laughs> this arm. Just shout out of my new favorite place in Sonoma. There's this uh, Salumeria. This guy making handmade salami in house called Ovello. Oh. Um, Right, like across the street from from Whole Foods. Oh yeah, uh, on Napa Street and down, like right off of the plaza. Uh, so he's doing a big table. We're gonna get Vela cheese. Nice. Uh, I just found out Mike the Baker's gonna be there, nice. so we can, we'll have a fire to keep us warm. And uh, doing some flatbreads. Um, and David Gans. David Dave, and David Gans, right? Okay. David Gans will. Um, he does a satellite, a Sirius XM radio show mm-hmm. on Sunday midday on the Grateful Dead channel. We and all then, have the perfect face for radio. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's that's why this isn't a video podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then he'll be playing with his new band, the Yerba Buena Orchestra, oh, um, wow. from about three to six on Sunday. Last the the solstice. It's the first night of Hanukkah. 
and the last Sunday before Christmas. Those are all great so, things. Wait yeah. a minute, it's the, that's the first day of Hanukkah. First night of Hanukkah, yeah. Oh shit! So, so all we're the be all the like kosher rosé. We got a little bit of kosher rosé left. We're gonna light oh, a menorah. Nice. I was gonna do latkes, but it's really like a yeah. Mess. I love making latkes. Uh, it's it's a great thing to do um, at somebody else's kitchen. Barry and, and for two people <laughs> or four people, yeah. right? Barry Schuler <laughs> has the best latke recipe online. Barry Schuler from Meteor Vineyards. Okay, the yeah, best yeah. latke recipe. All right, bar none online. Yeah. Well, I'm making lockers in my house the night after, okay. so I'll have to look it up. Yeah, it looked very Schuler from Meteor Vineyards. Okay. He's right. the best lock of every. It's right. great. Right, it cool. really is. I do. All right. That's it. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. Paul, thank you very much for allowing Thanks. us in. Thanks, Thanks for Paul. having us. Thanks for Secret knock Napa. at the Napa door. Right. All right. If you want to listen to past episodes, you can go to radiomisfits.com, search the winemakers, and we'll look forward Review, to Review, subscribe, and uh, give us your love. And check out The Bike Goes On. Hey, if you want to listen to another podcast, we have one for you called The Bike Goes On, where uh, this woman named Sondra Bernstein from The Girl and the Fig has some lackey who mans the boards for her, and they talk to chefs and cheesemakers. By the way, she's awesome. (laughs) And the lackey's all right. She's uh, (laughs) Sondra's in Mexico City right now. She just decided to bail on California and go to Mexico City. I think she's there for eight days or ten days. She's just hitting restaurants. Hottest hottest destination in the world right now. Uh, Everybody's going to Mexico City. Yeah. I mean, the food scene... Yeah. Off the chart, yeah. right? By the way, your label's awesome, Sam. On the thanks. sixteen, you thank know. you. Yeah. Shout out, to Stanley Mouse. Yeah. All right, thanks, guys. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. Cheers.